Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Well, hello, friends. It is really great to be with you today. I want to welcome you here. It's just good to be able to share with you in this way. And I hope so far in our time together, you've been blessed and encouraged already. Big thanks to Crystal and her team for leading us today. I also want to give a big thanks to Valerie Comer for preaching last week. Wasn't that great? I'm so thankful for the gifted preachers we have here in our congregation who are so willing to share their gifts with us. So thank you, Valerie. I really appreciate that. And what you said was so, so encouraging to me personally. This Living from the Center series, I'm really enjoying it. There's something about this Romans 8 passage that I, I keep coming back to. There's such gravitational pull to this beautiful, amazing piece of scripture. And to be able to walk through it together is, is such a treat, living from the center. The thing I've been thinking about this week is that if living from the center is so significant, which I think it is, if, if even the truths that we're exploring here in Romans 8 of, about freedom, about life, about power, I mean, if it really is all that I'm suggesting it is, that I believe it is, then it's got to make a difference in those most difficult places in our lives. Don't you think? Living from this uh, no condemnation, uh, spirit-led, children of God center, it has to shift the very way that you and I experience suffering, experience hardship or pain, or brokenness. I think living from the center needs to make a difference when we, when we experience the loss of someone that we love. It needs, to, it needs to help us when we feel betrayed by a friend or when we witness corruption going on in government or in business or even when we just feel our own bodies breaking down. It's got to connect somehow, doesn't it? I think living from the center has to somehow help us respond to things as varied as songbirds that are becoming endangered or domestic violence that's hidden in homes or even the increasing divisions that we're seeing in culture and even in the church. It has to connect there. It has to help us. I think it's from this very center of life in Christ that we then lament the millions of lives that have been lost or have been affected by COVID. As well as lamenting the, let's be honest, kind of untold devastation that's even come from fighting the pandemic the lockdown, the restrictions, and all the effects that that's had on our lives. Somehow, somehow living from the center, it has to connect there. 
Because if living from the center doesn't meet us right where we hurt, where you hurt, where I struggle, right in the middle of where the pain and the evil exist, then you kind of got to ask, what good is it, right? We don't need, you don't need, I don't need. We do not need pious platitudes. I don't need that. We don't need some sort of pie in the sky and then you die. We need hope, real hope, hope on the ground, hope in the mud, hope in the struggle, hope that works right where you and I live and serve and love and where we suffer. I think that's not only essential to our faith and our walk with Christ, but it's also essential to our witness to Christ. And so in a dramatic, I think, timely way, the Apostle Paul leads us there, right into a place of suffering. And we discover that this no-condemnation, spirit-led, child-of-God life in Christ positions us not only to understand our suffering in a whole new way, but also to engage that suffering with a whole new hope. Would you pray with me as we dive in to Romans 8? Lord Jesus, our hope and our desire is that we would find here today a renewed sense of our life in you, that we would live from this very center of who you are, of your life in us, of all that you've done for us and are calling us into. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that right now you would meet us in particular as we consider the places of pain and hurt in our lives. Lead us now, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So here's our question for today. How do we suffer well? How do we suffer well as God's kids? I mean, we talk, I think, in maybe not quite these words, but we, I think we consider all the time, how do we love well? How do we serve well? How do we respond well? But have we often considered how do we suffer well? It's critical that we ask that question. How do we suffer well? Because we all suffer. We're surrounded by suffering. Many of you who are with me today are suffering physically, suffering relationally. Some of us have even had conversations just recently about the various ways you're experiencing hurt and struggle. There's no argument there. And, and then not only that, we're witnessing it, aren't we? We can think of family members or friends or neighbors who are experiencing suffering in their lives in some way or another. So how can we, as God's children, suffer well? Well, first of all, to suffer well, we must see our suffering as sharing, not despairing. Sharing, not despairing. We heard this at the tail end of Valerie's message last week, and we're going to start there. We're going to back up slightly to Romans 8, verse 16. Remember what's been happening. We're assured that we are God's kids, that we have this 
place in God's family as his adopted children, filled with the Holy Spirit, able to speak to the Father, Abba, Father, in the same words that Jesus himself used and given all this promise. It's amazing. Listen to it again from verse 16 and 17. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But, and this is where a crucial shift happens, but if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. If we're to share in his glory, we're also, we must also share in his suffering. Paul wants us to understand our suffering, your suffering, as a way that we actually share in the suffering of Jesus himself, which in turn connects us to, to the glory that we share as well. Now, Paul understands his own suffering in this way. And if you've known the story of Paul at all, you know that he suffered an awful lot. But listen to what he says to the Christian church in the ancient city of Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, he said, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Did you hear that connection? But not just Paul. The Apostle Peter said a very similar thing when he challenged Christians to make this sharing connection. In 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Peter said, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials, listen to this, these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. When we live from the center with a life that is oriented around Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, living condemnation-free and filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit as God's adopted kids, When that is true, there is a way in which our suffering is now a shared suffering. Yes, a shared suffering that looks forward to shared glory, but profoundly a shared suffering now, right in the difficulty of life. Which shouldn't surprise us, actually. Because we follow Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, who really personified suffering and glory. I mean, so much so that we can't actually understand the glory of God without embracing the suffering servant, Jesus. Nor can we grasp the true suffering of Jesus without reference to how it was through his suffering that God was truly glorified. So suffering and glory, they go together in Jesus, but also in the life of his followers, the life of God's kids. 
Now, that right there, this whole idea that in our suffering, we share in the sufferings of Jesus, right there, that can change the nature of our suffering. It can shift our experience of it. It doesn't make suffering less cruel. It doesn't necessarily alter the, the fact that there is real pain that's happening, things we wish would not be happening, things that God actually doesn't want to have happening. It doesn't change that. But it does change the power of that suffering over our hearts and our minds. It can alter our experience in the suffering. It can actually help us suffer well. But Paul doesn't stop there. He now sets both our suffering and Christ's suffering in a larger context. If we first have to reframe our suffering as sharing, not despairing, now we have to reframe our suffering by comparing what's now with what's next. Listen to verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Nothing compared. What we suffer now is nothing compared. Those are powerful words. I mean, think about what you're going through. Think of what members of your family or a particular friend is experiencing right now. Nothing compared. What we suffer now is hard. We don't need to deny that or minimize that. What Jesus suffered was hard, cruel, awful. And for some people, what they suffer in this life is very, very hard. There's no denying that. And nowhere in Scripture are we called to minimize the reality of suffering or make light of the unfair or harsh or evil actions, unspeakable and often unexplainable things that happen. Those are real. But what Paul wants us to do here with our suffering is to kind of like play a comparison game. Now, we know most comparison games that people are playing today are negative, are unhelpful. It's about comparing our lives with other people's lives and looking at our stuff and their stuff or our experience and their experience or maybe even sometimes our suffering and their suffering. That usually isn't very helpful. But the comparison game here isn't about comparing ourselves to someone else. It's about comparing our experience now with our experience next. It's about comparing what's now with what's next. It's acknowledging that what's now is hard, but what's next is going to put it all into perspective. That what's now might be unexplainable, but what's next is going to make sense of it. God's going to make sense of it. What's now is often so gut-wrenching that we can hardly hold on, but what's next is going to take all the hurt and all the pain and all the heartache and all the evil 
and, it's, and God is going to make it right again. It's like Sam at the end of Lord of the Rings when he exclaimed to Gandalf, are all the sad things going to come untrue? Yes. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't fuzzy sentimentalism. Rather, it's firmly rooted in what God has promised us in his word and revealed to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, our vision of what's next is formed by God's holy prophets who gifted us these incredible visions of a world that was made right where the lion lies down with the lamb and the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Our vision of what's next is formed by Jesus, our Messiah, who shook off the grave and rose in a body, vibrant flesh and blood, released forever from decay and death. You know, his glorious resurrection is the prototype for our resurrection. And it's the promise that what happened to him is going to happen to us. Our resurrection is coming too. Our vision of what's next is formed by that revelation that was given to John at the very end of the Bible, where we see that there is a time coming, guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ, guaranteed by God himself, a time coming when all tears will be wiped away from our eyes, when evil will be no more, when God will finally come and take up residence in his dream home among his people, his resurrected people, on a recreated earth. But you know, frankly, our vision of what's next is still pretty paltry. It's based on some hints and some snatches, and they're sure, but it doesn't really flesh out the whole picture. And that's why Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian Christians, he takes a quote from the great prophet Isaiah, and it reminds us of this. He says, remember, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What's now must be compared to what's next. Paul wants us to get this clear in our mind's eye so that our experience of suffering is now reframed around Jesus Yes, around his suffering, but also around his glory. Yes, around our participation in his sufferings now, but also in the glory that we know is coming. And we look to Jesus and we see what happened to Jesus and we know God has promised to do the same for us. What's next will so far outstrip what's now that our heads are going to spin. We don't exactly know what that means, but we trust the one who made the promise. It'll account. God will account for all the evil, and he will more than set things right. You know, I believe in a God who will make up for every act of injustice, who will turn every act of evil, who will more than make up for every discarded and buried indigenous child, or every battered wife, or every forgotten slave, or any whiff of stench, or rot, or injustice, or pain 
that God is so good and the glory coming is so great and God is so committed to his creation, to his history, to our future, that even now we can look evil straight in the face, standing even within our own suffering and declare, yes, this is awful. Yes, this is not what God had desired. But what's coming is so good and so glorious and so just like God that all of this, no matter how unspeakable or how evil or how difficult it is to imagine, all of this will be made right by Him. And we hold on to that. When I have sat with some of you or other people in our community who are facing incredible grief and loss, things that aren't explainable, things that are hard. All I know is this, and in, in, in hopefully appropriate and in right ways to be able to say, look, I don't know how. I don't know how God is going to make up for this. I don't know how this is all going to come undone. I don't know how God is going to make all things new, but I know that he will. He's just that good. He can't wait. How does that help us now? Well, let's keep going on in the passage because we're still really hurting. We're still in the midst of the mess, right? Well, the Apostle Paul now moves us into the context of the larger creation and the resurrection that's coming. And it helps us because it means that even as we suffer, we can suffer with hope. Romans eight nineteen to 22. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You know, Paul has already taken our suffering and he's placed it in the context of Christ's suffering and glory. But now he takes our suffering and he places it in the context of creation's suffering and glory. All of creation is suffering too, Paul says. But it's suffering. He wants us to hear this. The suffering of creation is infused with hope. Creation is personified here by Paul. And it's pictured as though creation is standing on its tiptoes in expectation, filled with hope, looking for what's going to happen, waiting for the change to come, waiting for the time when it too is released as we are recreated, as we are resurrected. It anticipates its own freedom in our freedom. And it's pretty remarkable. Here in this passage, we're reminded again that the freedom, the redemption, the fate of God's whole creation is somehow bound up with ours, with our freedom with our resurrection. And so today, Paul wants us to hear this. In the midst of all this brokenness, creation groans. And this groaning can be heard everywhere. 
from the extinction of songbirds to earthquakes to climate change to mudslides, creation groans. But rather than a groan of despair, Paul wants us to hear a groan of delivery. Now, this is a very significant shift. Rather than interpreting the upheavals, the difficulties, as gasps of hopelessness, Paul wants us to hear creation groaning as though she were a woman giving birth. Painful, definitely. Harrowing, absolutely. Feels like it's going to go on forever. Ask any woman who's endured long deliveries. And yet, there's a groaning, a time of pain that is filled with hope for what's coming. And there's a world of difference between the cries of a woman giving birth and the gasps of a woman giving up. This groaning, though, isn't just within broader creation, is it? It's happening within us, too. And that's where Paul takes us next. Verse 23, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of God's of, of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We, too, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Like creation's groaning, we are now to interpret our own cries of pain, our own struggle with suffering. We're we're called to interpret that as a hopeful groaning, a way in which our very bodies, our very minds, our very souls somehow long with eager hope for that day that is coming when we will be fully transformed, when we will be raised again in beautiful, amazing resurrection bodies and granted the full rights as adopted kids. This is huge. Because when we live from this center, yes, suffering continues to hurt us. Yes, there is still destruction going on in our lives and others. We don't deny that. But now, by this gift of the Holy Spirit, we've been given the power to reframe the suffering. Not by calling it good, but by groaning in hope. Not by denying its existence, but somehow in the midst of that, lamenting to the one who has promised to make all things new. Even in our most difficult moments, we weep in reference to what's coming. It's as though the gap between what's now and what's next is filled up with our tears, our cries, our groans of hope. This gift of hope is given to us by the Holy Spirit, we're told, where he takes like a taste, a deposit. It's named a lot of things in Scripture, but a taste of this future glory. The Holy Spirit takes a bit of that future, a bit of what's next, 
and he transplants it into the present now. He gifts us with some of the future glory in our experience today, which is a beautiful thing, but also can heighten the tension between what's now and what's next, and perhaps maybe even drives our groaning more deeply. But it plants hope in us that what's now is not what will be, but rather what will be will be what God does, how he makes it new. And so here at the very end of our passage today, we read 24, 25, we are given this hope when we, we were given this hope when we were saved. If you already have something, you don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. The reality is we still suffer. We still ache, body, mind, soul. We ache for wayward kids. We ache for broken marriages. We ache for anyone, anywhere that is experiencing hurt and brokenness and pain. But somehow, we now suffer knowing two crucial things. We do not suffer alone. We share in the sufferings of Christ. And we do not suffer forever. What's coming next is so glorious and so amazing that what's suffering now will be forever changed. So our question, how do we suffer well? How do you suffer well? I want to just offer a couple of kind of application, maybe conversation questions for you. I don't know who you're with today. Maybe a friend, maybe a spouse. Maybe there's someone you need to just pick up the phone as soon as we're done. And you need to ask and talk about these things we're going to talk about right now. But I encourage you to have a conversation with a friend. Um, take some time to reflect and maybe journal on these couple of questions. Well, the first one is has to do with sharing and suffering. I wonder, where are you experiencing or maybe witnessing suffering right now? Maybe you know immediately where it is. Maybe you're facing some real physical ailments, challenges, cancer. Um, something has been broken in your body, you're waiting for surgery. Um, something unexplainable, something the doctors can't figure I don't know what it might be, but where are you experiencing that? It could be that you're experiencing some kind of relational estrangement from someone. There's been, there's been something broken. There's been things said or unsaid. or there, there's, there's this distance that you wish wasn't there and you don't know how to make it up. Or maybe you're just really, really lonely. Here's my question. How can you reframe your suffering as something in which you're sharing with Jesus. You're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, this isn't something that can just be just easily made up on the spot. I encourage you to kind of live into that this week. Maybe journalists talk about this, but try to begin to look at the thing you're suffering, the area, the relationship, the, the body ailment, whatever it is, and just ask, Jesus, how is this a share in your suffering? 
How is this loneliness a share in your loneliness? How is this physical sickness a share in your broken body? How is this relational difficulty a share in what you are going through? And let the Holy Spirit lead you more deeply into that. There's something powerful in there for you as we reframe our suffering as something in which we are sharing with Christ, sharing with his sufferings. The second is groaning toward glory. How does this reframing that we've been talking about, how does it help us more hopefully groan? We still groan, we still lament, we still cry out, but how can we do so in a way that is oriented toward what God has promised to do? Oriented toward hope. As I said just a moment ago, the fact the Holy Spirit has given us a taste of what God will do and is doing, it can actually amp up our tension between what is now and what is next. How do we participate in that tension hope. Maybe you need to deepen your understanding of some of the visions that God has given to us, the commitments that he's made to us, the things that have been revealed through scripture and through Christ about what is coming. Maybe you need to start to acknowledge that you felt pretty hopeless and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a clearer picture and experience of hope. Next week, we're going to take that groaning one step further as we explore how the Holy Spirit even groans from within us. But for today, to simply ask, where do you hear groaning? Where do you hear it? Maybe you hear it in creation. Maybe you hear it in yourself. Maybe you hear it in a relationship. Maybe you hear it on the news or in conversation with a friend. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you hear the groaning. And then ask the Holy Spirit to help you groan along in hope. To kind of note the groaning in yourself or and say, Holy Spirit, I want to I want to cry out about this injustice or I want to I want to I want to weep for this brokenness but I want to do so with hope. Would you help me with that? Holy Spirit, would you help me groan toward glory? So those are two things I invite you to discuss with a spiritual friend, with a spouse. Pick up the phone, send a message, have that conversation but also take some time this week to just reflect on that. Write about it. How can we suffer well? I think it's from this center. This center where we understand that even in our suffering, we are not alone. Jesus is with us. We are sharing in his suffering. And what we're experiencing now is not going to last. And it's nothing compared to what's coming. We can hold on to that. We can hold on to that hope. Hold on to that hope in trust because God is good.
Because as we do, we, we don't deny the reality of evil, but we also don't let evil win the day. We suffer in hope. We groan toward glory. Because friends, I want you to hear as I close today, Jesus is with you. He's with us. And God is so good. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never forget your troubles. And unimaginable glory is coming for the children of God who will receive resurrection bodies, who will live with God in his fully redeemed creation. Let's hold on to that hope. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for sharing with us. I thank you for the privilege of sharing in your suffering. I pray now for each one of us, particularly for those of us where the suffering's really sharp right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that in our place of pain, you would reveal your presence. And that somehow our own suffering and difficulty would be reframed around this. You are with us. We're sharing in your suffering. And there's good things coming. You're going to make up for all this. And we look forward to that. So for my brothers and sisters today, for anyone who is seeking to make sense of this world and trying to figure out how we can hold on with hope, I pray that today would be a day where we are learning to suffer well <laughs> because you are so, so good. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.